Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got a story about the resolution of the dispute between the Del Deos and the Cape Cod National Seashore, and the end of the road for the Fox and Crow restaurant in Wellfleet. And we've got stories about upcoming special town meetings in Truro and Orleans. And Ira Wood is here to ask the question of whether men are tortoises and women hares. The U.S. Department of the Interior and the Del Deo family have come to an agreement that will allow the Del Deos to return to Frenchie's Dune Shack, which they have taken care of for decades. The move comes after several months of quiet negotiations between the attorneys representing the Del Deos and officials in the Department of the Interior. Those conversations became much more constructive in mid-August, leading to the deal that was signed on Friday, September 29th. On Saturday morning, a team of rangers unscrewed the boards blocking the shack's doorway, which they had installed on June 29th. Josephine Del Deo played a major role in persuading Provincetown voters to endorse the creation of the Cape Cod National Seashore in 1961. Although she died in 2016, her family still celebrates her October 4th birthday at the Dune Shack that she and Sal Del Deo had loved since 1953. Josephine's son, Romolo Del Deo, said getting the shack reopened by that date had become important to people at the Department of the Interior and not just the family. In May, the Del Deo family and seven other families associated with individual dune shacks received eviction notices from the Cape Cod National Seashore. For years, the families had spent summers in the dunes while paying rent, taxes, and providing material upkeep to the buildings. The Seashore released a request for proposals in May inviting anyone to submit bids to lease the shacks. The move stunned the families who have lived in the dune shacks for years and many of their supporters. Protests were staged. Local, state, and federal legislators weighed in on the side of the dune shack families. On Saturday, Seashore officials turned over the keys to the Del Deo family, and the Del Deos were back. The Del Deo family now has a five-year special use permit. Romolo Del Deo's name has been added to the permit alongside his father's. If anything were to happen to his father, Romolo Del Deo will continue to maintain possession based on the terms of the special use permit. The other family-occupied dune shacks are also moving toward some kind of resolution of this summer's highly controversial leasing program. Janet Armstrong, whose parents bought a dune shack and an acre of land more than a decade before the National Seashore was created, is no longer facing imminent eviction. In August, she accepted a one-year special-use permit, which could be reissued for a second year if the agency has not finished holding a public leasing contest for that shack by August 31, 2024. The other eight dune shacks that are occupied by families are all part of the current public leasing contest that began on May 1st. 
Those families had all been told to vacate their dune shacks by September 2nd if they did not win a 10-year lease. In mid-August, those families were told their occupancy would be extended to September 29th. On October 2nd, two of those families were given further extensions to November 15th and told that the award of a 10-year lease will be completed within the next few weeks. The other families were told that the selection of a new leaseholder will not be completed in the near term. Their permits were extended to April 30th, 2024. It was a difficult summer for Trudy Vermeren, the owner of the Fox and Crow restaurant in Wellfleet. There were complaints from neighbors about noise, then debates with her landlords over staff housing conditions and rent payments. There were accusations about squid in the rafters at the lounge next door. And on September 11th, there was a fire that destroyed the employee rooms she had leased and caused some smoke damage to her cafe. Landlords John O'Toole and Grant Hester, who own the Main Street property and operate the Copper Swan Inn and an adjacent lounge that was destroyed in the fire, served Vermeeren with an eviction notice in July. At a September 28th hearing on the eviction in Orleans District Court, Vermeeren's attorney told the judge that a verbal agreement had been reached between the Fox and Crow's owner and her landlords. Vermeeren agreed to leave by the end of September, but asked for a little more time to move the equipment she owned. Vermeeren said she did not plan to seek a new location for the Fox and Crow. On Sunday, she posted the news on Instagram that the Fox and Crow is now closed for good, and she thanked the community for its support. Vermeeren opened the Fox and Crow Cafe in 2018 on Commercial Street in Wellfleet. When COVID shut most places down in 2020, she founded a nonprofit called Common Table with Bruce Behrens and Kristen Chance. During the pandemic, the organization, with the aid of donations and a host of volunteers, provided 22,000 free meals to the community. The Copper Swan owners said they don't currently have plans for the restaurant space. They're still waiting for final reports on the cause of the fire on September 11th and are working with the insurance company. According to the state fire marshal's office, no cause of the September fire has been identified. Investigators looked closely at the potential failure of a refrigerator within the unit, but were unable to conclusively confirm it or rule it out as the cause. Pending any new information, the cause is still undetermined, but not suspicious. Following up on a story we reported last week, the Chatham Select Board Tuesday authorized the removal of the venerable horse chestnut tree from the front lawn of the Eldridge Public Library. Saying it was necessary for reasons of public safety and accessibility, the board also approved the removal of a maple tree on Library Lane and 32 trees along George Ryder Road. With a trunk some nine feet in circumference, the horse chestnut is likely between 100 and 150 years old, according to Dee Dee Holt of the Chatham Friends of Trees. The library itself was dedicated in 1896, so it might have been planted around the same time. Town and library representatives told the board that removing the tree is necessary if plans are to go forward to improve access to the library by upgrading the walkway and sidewalk in front of the building. The Norway maple on Library Lane is also in the way of a proposed access path linking the library's accessible side entrance to sidewalks on Main Street. 
Town officials argued that while the tree might survive the root damage that would be caused by the construction project, it would be weakened and could become dangerous. Select board members said the decision was a difficult one, but the town needs to move toward better accessibility for all citizens, and the library is a prime example. The board voted unanimously to approve the removal of the two library trees, which will be replaced by two new trees planted farther away from the road. Board members also reluctantly agreed to the removal of 32 trees along George Ryder Road to make room for a proposed multi-use path linking the old Colony Rail Trail to the new path along Route 28 in West Chatham. The board also approved a resolution requiring staff to devise a plan for replacing the 32 trees with new ones to be planted elsewhere on town property. Less than one week before Massachusetts observes Columbus Day, lawmakers and Native American advocates asked a legislative committee to replace the holiday with Indigenous Peoples Day. Twenty states and Washington, D.C. have already recognized the revamped Native American Day. The Massachusetts legislation has been awaiting a hearing since mid-February, nearly eight months ahead of Columbus Day. The legislation states that the day should be observed to acknowledge the history of genocide and discrimination against indigenous peoples and to recognize and celebrate the thriving cultures and continued resilience of indigenous peoples and their tribal nations. Prior legislation to establish Indigenous Peoples Day was reported favorably out of the committee last session, although top Democrats in the House and Senate did not advance the proposals further. Singer, songwriter, and storyteller Zoe Lewis first came to Provincetown when she was 26 years old. It was the early 1990s, and she'd already been all around the world. But Lewis, a romantic and self-proclaimed wash ashore, fell in love with the town. Provincetown reminded her of the place where she grew up, Roddingdean, a seaside village on the English Channel that attracted artists and writers in the 19th century. Roddingdean is next to Brighton, the gayest place in England, really, according to Lewis. Lewis is set to perform four shows for Provincetown's Women's Week this year. The first, Songs in the Key of Z, at the Post Office Cafe on Sunday, October 8th, will be followed by a collaboration with Lucy Wainwright Roche on Monday, October 9th, at the Unitarian Universalist Meeting House. A 1920s speakeasy night with her band The Bootleggers at the Red Room on Thursday, October 12th, and finally, a concert at the Unitarian Universalist Meeting House with Katie Curtis on Saturday, October 14th. For Women's Week, Lewis says she likes to bring in new people to perform alongside, and also those with whom she can share the magic of Provincetown. Lewis may feel most free in her speakeasy show at the Red Room, which she's done for 10 years. The speakeasy features a swinging jazz band and a shifting ensemble of talented locals and celebrities. You can see the entire schedule of Women's Week events and get tickets at womensweekprovincetown.com. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Voters at the Orleans October 16th special town meeting will be asked to decide whether to fund eight new full-time firefighters. 
There are 33 articles on the warrant in all, including a proposal to hire a part-time sustainability and energy manager and funding awareness and education to honor indigenous peoples. Orleans Fire Chief George Deering on Tuesday called funding the new firefighters critical to the department's ability to respond to emergencies. The town currently has five firefighters per shift. An additional eight firefighters would mean seven per shift, allowing for two ambulances or an ambulance and fire engine on the road simultaneously. Even with the money, Deering predicted challenges to hire due to a national shortage of paramedics and firefighters, magnified on Cape Cod by the housing shortage and competition from other towns. Funding the new positions requires a simple majority vote at town meeting and passing an override during the November 7th town election. Both the Select Board and Finance Committee unanimously recommend passing the article, Orleans applied for funding through a federal grant that would pay for salaries and benefits for up to three years. While the town has not officially heard back yet, Deering said he believes it has not won the grant. The special town meeting will be held at 6 p.m. on Monday, October 16th at Nauset Middle School's gymnasium. The town meeting warrant is available on the town website. Another article headed before voters at the October special town meeting would give property owners extra incentive to comply with orders to connect to the town sewer. There's currently a $50 fine assessed to property owners for every day they are past due in connecting to the town sewer system, which went online in March. But Article 29 on the special town meeting warrant seeks authorization to increase that daily fine to $250. The proposed article also includes a reduction of the application fee to add a single-family home into a sewer service area from $1,500 to $250. In March, approximately 480 property owners in the first phase of sewer work downtown received notices from the town, giving them one year to connect their properties to the sewer. Downtown property owners must hire an engineer to design their specific connection and a contractor to execute the hookup. There are approximately 1,100 connections to be made across the 480 properties. Public Works Director Tom Daly said in an email dated September 28th that 21 properties have so far connected to the sewer. He said another 157 property owners have at least initiated the process of connecting. Alan McLennan, who chairs the Board of Water and Sewer Commissioners, said the demand for engineers and contractors means that not all downtown property owners will be able to connect to the sewer by March of next year, but he said those property owners can avoid the daily fines by showing that they're in the process of trying to connect. McLennan said the $250 fine is geared toward those property owners that might be resistant to complying with the order to connect at all. Beyond the daily fine, non-compliant property owners would also still be on the hook to pay for betterments associated with a hookup, even if they don't connect. In May of 22, voters at annual town meeting passed a bylaw stipulating that 80% of the cost of sewering would go on the tax rate, 
while the remaining 20% would be paid by property owners in the sewer areas. Given all that, McLennan said he's not aware of anyone who has so far resisted complying with their order to connect, but the revised fine will hopefully go a long way toward encouraging people against non-compliance. Every year since 2012, the Truro Select Board has included in its annual list of goals and objectives upgrading the Department of Public Works facility. At a special town meeting on October 21st, a funding authorization for $34.4 million for a new facility will appear before voters for the first time. DPW Director Jared Cabral says the buildings that currently make up the DPW facility range in age from 40 to 70 years. They're unventilated and not ADA-accessible or OSHA-compliant, and they don't have sprinklers. Due to insufficient floor space, several of the department's vehicles are stored outside, delaying DPW response time during bad weather and resulting in deterioration of town-owned equipment. The project is the subject of four of the 15 articles on the town meeting warrant. Article 2 seeks approval for the new facility's location. The select board voted this summer to put the facility on Route 6 near the police and fire stations. Article 3 requests authorization to borrow $35 million to fund the project. If it passes at town meeting and at the ballot box, then engineering and construction can proceed without the need for future town meeting action. Article 4, which would be indefinitely postponed if Article 3 passes, would authorize $3.5 million for just the engineering costs of the project. Article 3 received unanimous support from the Finance Committee, and was endorsed 4-1 to one by the select board, with Sue Arison voting no. The DPW's final appearance on the warrant is in a petitioned article. Its proposal involves a $15.5 million upgrade of the existing DPW facility near Town Hall. At a presentation to the select board on September 26th, lead petitioner Kevin Kukler and group member Anthony Garrett described the study group as a small group of volunteer experts with connections to Truro. Garrett is also president of the Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association. The group claims that its proposal is bigger, cheaper, safer, and faster to implement than the proposed public safety facility site. Jeff Alberti of Weston and Sampson, the town's project consultant, said that if that were true, he'd be pleased to support the proposal, but his firm doesn't think that's the case. Weston and Sampson's engineers noted the proposal's inadequacies in their response at the September 26th meeting. They expressed concerns about stormwater management, regrading the site, and safety issues due to insufficient space around maintenance bays. Select board member Bob Weinstein said the study group's proposal had monumental inadequacies and that the group does not include a professional engineer or land surveyor. He said the plan was a delaying tactic from people who live near the new project site and don't want to see a DPW facility near their houses. 
The Provincetown Zoning Board of Appeals has denied a proposal from the owners of the Foxbury Inn to add a third story with six guest rooms. At a public hearing on September 21st, two members of the ZBA voted to give the owners a permit to expand, and three were opposed. Owners Matt Verge and Dan Spinello bought the property at 29 Bradford Street Extension, located in a residential one zone, in 2019. The inn currently has 12 guest rooms. That number would have increased to 18. The innkeeper's attorney said the owners need to expand if the inn was to survive financially. Attorney Robin Reed said the innkeepers would now consider all options, but state law prohibits the same proposal from coming back before the permitting authority for two years. Condominium owners at Harbor Hill and Herring Cove Village opposed the Foxbury expansion, saying an additional floor would block their light, spoil their view, and lower property values. They argued that the addition would make the inn too big for their residential neighborhood. Reed withdrew the original proposal in early April before the ZBA took a vote when it became clear she didn't have the required supermajority. Reed submitted essentially the same plan for a third story with six rooms in early August. The project would have required a special permit for expanding a pre-existing non-conforming building and for the size of the expansion, since the new building would have been larger than the town's bylaws allow by right. The project also would have required a waiver of the town's parking space requirement. In an October 2nd email to the Provincetown Independent, Verge said he thought neighborhood opposition had waned. He wrote that far fewer letters opposing the project had been sent for the September hearing compared to what had come in the spring. Verge claimed one particularly outspoken property owner had harassed guests of the inn and used an air horn to create a nuisance. During the September 21st hearing, Reed said a neighbor had stolen building materials from her client's property and that relations between that neighbor and the applicants have been quite sour. Last spring, the neighbors had similar complaints about the inn owners, who they said had aimed spotlights and hung chimes and a cowbell to express frustration with their objections. At the April hearing, Attorney Reed said that Spinello had apologized to the neighbors and said in trying to engage him, he went about it in a bad way. The Cultural Center of Cape Cod, based in South Yarmouth, has entered into an agreement with the town of Barnstable to occupy the High Arts Campus on South Street in Hyannis. Early childhood education programs will begin with learning coordinator and artist Stephanie King preparing to start teaching next week. After years of stewarding the Hyannis campus, Elizabeth Jenkins, director of planning and development for the town of Barnstable and her team, including Melissa Chartrand, arts and culture coordinator for the town, are excited to give new life to the High Arts campus and thought the cultural center would be the perfect partner for the job. Jenkins said the Cultural Center's flagship space in Yarmouth is beautiful, and she's excited to bring some of that energy to Hyannis. On Tuesday morning, outside the Geyer Art Barn, 
Representatives of the town of Barnstable, the Cape's art community, and elected officials joined together in celebration of the Cultural Center's new mission to create a space for arts programming in Hyannis. Molly Demulinare, executive director for the Cultural Center of Cape Cod, told the Cape Cod Times that while she's proud of the fact that the South Yarmouth facility serves people of all ages and backgrounds, they don't have the population of families and young people that Hyannis does. The Cultural Center is still fine-tuning what's to come as they develop programming based on community responses. When speaking with community members, the Cultural Center found that many supported arts programming, but found that they weren't as accessible year-round. In looking to what's to come, Demulinari said she's excited about being part of ushering in a new artistic chapter for Hyannis. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. As my wonderful wife and I have decided to spend the upcoming three-day weekend at home, I'm planning to make myself as inconspicuous and low-profile as possible. Why? Perhaps if you're a man in a long-term hetero relationship, you can relate to the following scene. You are sitting unobtrusively in a living room chair. You are doing absolutely nothing to draw attention to yourself. You are fully dressed, you are showered and shaved, you are not reading a book or even surfing the web. But the fact that you are doing absolutely nothing is precisely the problem. To my wife, a man doing nothing is a waste of energy. A car left idling outside the post office or an air conditioner blasting frigid air through an empty house. It is precisely at this point that I, or maybe even you, are asked, have you hauled that old pile of scrap wood to the dump yet? But feel free to substitute the specific task at hand. It could be getting an old lamp rewired or repairing the old shed that looks as if it's about to fall down. It really doesn't matter. What matters here is that you have been asked to do this previously, and your response, which is the total truth, is, I'll get to it. This is a conversation that repeats almost every time I have not otherwise taken precautions to make myself look busy and results in an unsolicited opinion about the differences between men and women. To wit, men are content knowing that tasks need to be done, and women are not content until tasks are actually accomplished. Now, I want to make it plain here that I am talking about a straight couple, because I have no idea if the situation I have described is common in gay relationships or not. If my wife's theory about the difference between men and women is correct, things would always get done immediately in a relationship between two women, and things would never get done in a relationship between 
to men. We all know the old adage about men and procrastination. If a man says he'll do something, he will. No need to remind him every six months. And personally, I think this represents good, solid thinking. Why rush into things? Yes, that old shed looks like it's about to fall down. But do we know for sure? Why not wait until the next hurricane to find out? And once you do commit to do something, you want to do it right, which takes planning. This can be in the form of how-to books or YouTube videos, or my favorite form of research, which is asking other guys in bars. For this reason, I always ask my wife, do you want it done quickly or do you want it done right? To which she will answer, I just fracking want it done. There is scientific backing for all this. Women have four times as many brain cells connecting the right and left sides of their brain. So while men rely on their left brain to solve one problem one step at a time, women can focus on more than one problem at a time and very frequently multitask. To my mind, nothing illustrates differences between the male and female brain better than packing for a trip. My wife packs at least two days in advance, adhering to a checklist, and while she does so, arranges for about a hundred other things at the same time. I start packing before I go to bed the night before, or, if possible, a half hour before we're scheduled to leave, because, well, who wants to carry an extra sweater or a raincoat if you do not need to? Some scientists actually posit that, like Aesop's fable, men are tortoises and women are hares, and I'm fine with that, as long as I'm left alone in my shell all weekend to watch the Major League Baseball playoffs. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. You can become a sustainer of Outer Cape News with your contribution of $15 a month by calling the office at 508-487-2619 or logging onto the website at WOMR.org.